Hi there, House Culture listener. If you enjoy this episode or have enjoyed listening to other episodes in our series, please support and donate to us through the Acast Supporter feature. All donations will help us create the content that you love listening to. You can decide how much you give and there is no regular commitment. So it could be a one-off and every now and then or once every time you listen. It's really up to you. Click on the supporter link in the episode description and with Google or Apple Pay, it will take you less than 30 seconds to make your contribution. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. What's going on, people? This is Will Clark, and you're listening to the House Culture Podcast. House Culture Hello everybody and welcome to what is the penultimate episode of this season of the House Culture Podcast, hosted as always by me, the Managing Editor at House Culture, Matt Rouse. Thanks for choosing us today and settling in with your headphones, smart speaker or car stereo. However you get involved, it's your listens, messages and support that keeps this podcast alive. So don't be shy, get in touch or make a contribution via the Acast supporter feature. There's a link for that in the description. If you're new here, welcome to House Culture. We are a collective of house music fans who have come together through their mutual love of the beat to celebrate the spirit of house music. Instagram is our spiritual home, so seek us out at House Culture Net and add yourself to our community. Don't forget you can delve into the archives to listen to many more club culture conversations wherever you get your podcast. If it's the old school you're into, you can listen to people like Paul Oakenfold, Fatboy Slim, Todd Terry, Roger Sanchez and Danny Tanaglia tell us their stories in their own words. Or if you're into the conversations from the contemporaries within our scene, why not give our chats with Purple Disco Machine, Chris Lake, Katie Goodman or Dam Swindle some airtime. Whatever era you're into, we have got you covered. In this episode, it was an honour to sit down with a DJ and producer who is as famous for his blistering beats as he is for his beautiful beard. A most excellent podcaster in his own right as well, it could only be Will Clark. In our chat, Will tells us which musical artists first inspired him. Literally, Faithless was like the first thing that kind of got me into electronic dance music. And then from Faithless, it was Chemical Brothers and Moby, and then a little bit later on, Fatboy Slim. But how he got his first residency on that most famous of islands. So I used to go to this record shop called Spin Central, but the girl that looked after the house genres was somebody called Miss Divine, which is actually Sam Divine. She got a residency in Ibiza at a bar called Hush, 
and she asked me to play so i was like all right fuck it let's go so i was 16 did like two weeks and i played I played a couple of times there. Which of his own productions took his career to the next level? I wrote a record called Big Booty. And that record was the first record I like had ever had other big DJs really support my music. And that was when Jamie Jones was supporting my music, Eats Everything, Seth Troxler, MK. Like all the big guys at that time was all playing that record. And what the significance of the house music scene is from his perspective. For me, it's just community. It's just bringing people and allowing them escapism from reality, from all their issues that they have and that we all, that we all have, that we all go through in our daily lives, to just allow a safe space for people to be themselves and listen to great music. I hope you enjoy our conversation. This is Will Clark. House Culture. Hi, Will. It's great to have you join us on the House Culture podcast today. You're a DJ who's instantly recognisable for the party-driven sound, as well as a one-of-a-kind beard, an artist that has been doing it from an incredibly young age, and you're also famed for having your own successful podcast. We want to discover how you got to where you are today. However, we always want to start at the beginning and ask, whereabouts did you grow up? What kind of household was it? And how did you first discover music there? Uh, first of all, thanks for having me. I really appreciate it. I'm looking forward to coming on. That first question, I grew up in around the county of Somerset in the UK, which I always say I'm from Bristol because it's just easier to explain that to people that aren't from the UK. Totally. Um, but a little bit of a background of where, of what the county of Somerset is, is very country. It's a lot of farms. It's a lot of yeah, green fields and 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 cows really. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, I grew up in the middle of nowhere, um, and my household was just like everybody's. I think growing up, not everybody's, but a lot of people's is. My family listened to a lot of music growing up. My mum's a great singer. Um, my dad is not, but he has a great, great, great music collection. Um, and yeah, it's, uh, we all listened to music growing up. Um, it was, it was definitely a huge part of our, of our childhood. Mm. Sport was a huge part of my childhood as well. What sport was it? Was it rugby in that part of the world? Yeah, it's rugby. So I grew up with my dad watching, watching rugby or watching him play rugby. And then from the age of like three, I started playing and kind of took that to when I was 18, really, and stopped when I was 18. Used to play for county school district. No way. And it, for me, like, it was actually musical rugby. It was like, that was the only two things I wanted to do in my life. Mm-hmm. Um, and realistically, like, I'm too small to play rugby <laughs> at a high standard. <laughs> and I think by the age of 18, I'd, like, had shoulder surgery my ankles were gone like everything was kind of just at that point where it was just like okay well like stop and then i I stopped for a bit and went back and first game back i broke my arm so i was like (laughs) okay cool the universe is telling you to stop yeah Yeah. (laughs) time to go um but yeah it's like i was i was really fortunate i had a great childhood Mm -hmm. um really good childhood and 
very supportive parents with pretty much anything I wanted to do. Yeah. And you you know, you mentioned music in the household. What kind of what kind of music were your parents listening to you exposed to at that early age? Bunk soul, Motown, classic glam rock. Mm-hmm. Yeah, just kind of like my parents were born in the sixties. So they grew up sixties, seventies, eighties. So kind of just the classics from, from yeah. then really. My dad's a huge punk punk fan as well. So quite a lot of like punk old like sixties punk rock really. Sixties, mm-hmm. seventies punk rock, which mm-hmm. is special. Um mum's more of a ballad type. But yeah, we, we had we had a Die Straits were just like a meatloaf. They were all like classics in in our childhood. Otis Redding. Yeah. Aretha, Aretha Franklin. Like kind of like I from if I'm honest, pretty much what everyone else was probably listening to at the same time. Um, but it wasn't like anything like my mum and dad weren't like they weren't like diggers of music, if that makes sense. Yeah. They weren't like record diggers, but music was always there mm-hmm. in everything, everything we did. Yeah. From family holidays to just walking around the house. Always I remember like some of my youngest memories was just playing records as a family on the vinyl vinyl playing or just singing singing songs and together mm-hmm. yeah yeah and you know obviously having that vinyl collection or just collection of music you can just pull on and pull out and put on and you know dig into from that young age it's so tactile as well it's uh, yeah. really makes that big impression i mean you know so where, when did you start getting into kind of like music of your own taste and did electronic music turn you on when you first started hearing that or was it something yeah else? Ele- electronic music was kind of the first genre of music i actually got into like myself mm-hmm. my brother brought back a dance 95 hits um how how old were you at that point do you mind me asking i was about five or six. Oh wow okay um, when he when he bought it and it had like some terrible music on looking back it was terrible like scooter move your ass like <laughs> fucking hell um, it's a classic it's of its own genre fashion that record, <laughs> yeah. Someone, someone's gonna do a tech house remix of that 100 <laughs> percent um yeah and then it also had insomnia by faithless mm-hmm. um and that was it literally faithless was like the first first thing that kind of got me into electronic dance music yeah and then from faithless it was chemical brothers mm-hmm. and moby um and then a little bit later on Fatboy slim yeah kind of also at that time when i got a little older and started learning to dj i i was influenced a lot by like classic soulful house mm-hmm. old defected Frankie Knuckles, Larry Levan, like yeah. things like that. Yeah. And that was kind of the first intro to me being a DJ was mm-hmm. was that type of music. Yeah. And do you think that that was uh, a symptom of the era that you were learning to DJ or getting into it? Or do you think it was because you, you know, you'd grown up in a household that had like Motown and soul and funk or maybe a combination of the two? It was definitely, yeah, probably a combination of two, but I think realistically, so... When I learned to DJ, it was, I went to like a, they used to do this thing called the DJ Academy in the UK. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was quite a popular thing. I was 12 or 13 at the time. So we're talking 2003. Um, fucking hell, 20 years ago. <laughs> Jesus. <laughs> um, and uh, we, 
so mum and dad got it for me for my birthday present, I believe, or Christmas present. And it was like a 10 week course. And what you would do is you'd go to a, a nightclub, but on like a Monday mm-hmm. and there'd be like 20 or 30 of us all trying to learn to DJ and it would be split up into like intermediate, medium and like beginners. Mm-hmm. And I was like an absolute beginner. So I didn't know what mixing was at all. I didn't have a fucking clue. I didn't really know what I was going there for. Mm-hmm. Like I knew I wanted to be a DJ, but I didn't know what it consisted of being a DJ. Like my my knowledge of being a DJ was like playing at a wedding, if you know what I mean. Or like playing like a disco as a kid. So like... I didn't really understand the whole mixing two records together. And then I got there and like saw two decks being mixed together and was like, okay, Mm -hmm. like this is what we got to do. Um, But on the course, there was a lot of like, well, I was 13 at the time, 12, 13. So I was like, realistically, everyone was older than me. I was Mm -hmm. definitely the youngest on the course by a good, like at least 10 years, if not, if not 15 years. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think I was very heavily influenced by a handful of the people on that course and a handful of the people were into like very soulful defected house. And that was also when head candy was coming around mm-hmm. and head candy back then was like uber cool. And like this, like really cool, soulful kind of night that was like popping up around the uk um it got very cheesy very quickly um but it was cool for like a for like a year um and that was kind of like the influences a lot of a lot of the guys and girls that were actually on the course were like very into that that like soulful house defected subliminal like those those kind of days um and then from that me learning to mix on vinyl, I there was a local record shop in a kind of a local town called Western Supermare. Mm-hmm. Um and I don't know if you know much about the southwest of England. A little it's bit. very it's known for it's known for like hard house drum and bass, mm-hmm. like very harsh music, very hard music. Like the Southwest likes to go hard and like kind of jungly um which i would never was really into at the time um so i used to go to this record shop called spin central and it was owned by a guy called gareth his dj name was kick dj kickback and he was like a hard house dj like hard house hardcore Mm -hmm. and there was another guy that was in there i can't remember his name but the girl that looked after um all the the house kind of genres was somebody called Miss Divine, which is actually Sam Divine. Ah, oh, no way. Okay. So then I kind of built a relationship with with Sam mm-hmm. um, from like the age of like, I was 12, 13. That's been about 13 then, 13 up until I was 15. And then she used to like run a night in Western Supermare can't even remember i i could take take you to the club Mm -hmm. but it's not a club now it's like nothing Mm -hmm. i think it was called the imperial Mm -hmm. and she asked me to play one night and like my mum and dad came and my family came and so you were 13 at this stage 15 15 okay 
I was I was 15 when I played for Sam, but my first gig was when I was 13 in Bristol. Uh -huh. So so the deal of the like club night uh, of the of the the DJ academy, we'd all throw a night after the 10 weeks of learning how to DJ. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, and you'd like learn how to like make flyers and you'd make promo CDs and do all of the like the stuff you had to do back then. Yeah. There wasn't just DJ and it was like there was part theory, part DJ, part business. It was really interesting. Okay. And so yeah, like Sam asked me to play one of her record, one of her shows um, in in Western Supermare, and then and then she moved to Ibiza to play. To, she got a residency in Ibiza, a bar called Hush. Yeah, Hush Hush was like a new bar on the West End, yeah. which was like a very much workers workers bar. That like so, uh, what I mean by workers bar is you'd you have obviously a bunch of workers that work in Ibiza and then they obviously want to go to party somewhere after they finish work. And that was hush at the time. Yeah. I don't know if you, I don't know if you'd ever been there. Yeah, no, I know. I know it almost yeah. too well. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, so she got a residency at hush. Mm -hmm. um, and like, literally she was like booking DJs with Jimmy. Jimmy was one of the owners. Um, and she asked me to play. And so I was like, all right, fuck it, let's go. So I was 16 when my mum and dad and I think my sister and her boyfriend came out, her boyfriend at the time came out with me, um, did like two weeks and I played, I played a couple of times there. Amazing. So that was like, that was like the family holiday then, was it? For pretty much. To, to take you out there and support you in your DJing. Yeah, pretty much. Yeah. It was, and it was like, I was shitting my pants, obviously. I'm yeah. 16 playing in Ibiza. Like I, I didn't know how any of this worked and it was an absolute game changer for me, really. Yeah. What was that? What was those um, like first couple of times behind the decks there like? Was it like, how nerve wracking was it for someone so young? Absolute petrifying. And realistically, I wasn't a good DJ. Mm. Like I shouldn't have been DJing. Like it was, I could barely mix I wasn't good at all. Like I was used to playing vinyl at home, mm -hmm. not on a massive system that like sounds really good, but like you're playing vinyl decks in a club, like you, the environment of a nightclub with mixed with vinyls, you have to like learn like how the sound like changes, yeah. like the, the vibrations change the needle and everything mm -hmm. like that. So it was like, it was a quick lesson that I learned. Um, but literally, like from the second, I was like, okay, I've got to move to Ibiza. <laughs> it was like, it was it was my thing that I had to do. And I, I went home after that summer, after two weeks there and was like, okay, I need to save up some money and allow myself to go out there next year when I was 17 mm -hmm. and stay for like a month and just network and see if I can get a job Yeah, for the following year when I was 18. Wow. Um, luckily, I did. And became, a, I was a resident at a place called the Orange Corner. Mm -hmm. I, my job started the two days before my 18th birthday. <laughs> I mean, and what did your, you know, obviously your parents were really supportive in, in that first instance, that first travel out there. What did they, what were their thoughts about this now when you were like, right, I'm, I'm going to move out there and this is my thing now, you know, was there any trepidation on their part or did they just know like, well, he knows what he wants, he's going to go and get it? I think that, I think at the latter, like don't get me wrong, there was probably something that they would tell me about that they wouldn't, 
there was probably a lot of feelings, a lot of worry that they were not going to express to me. Um, like, I think my mum didn't have a great childhood at all and kind of was never supported in all of the, the like things that she wanted to do. And my dad had a great childhood, but it was like a classic 60s childhood where you go to school and if you're not super academic you go get a trade and then you go crack on mm. um so i think like both my parents were like wanted to support me in whatever i wanted to do which was really really fortunate um and i think that was like a little bit of acceptance from them that was like he's doing what he absolutely loves like let's just let him go have fun and see if he can make anything of this <laughs> really so what were those initial what were those gigs like when you when you went out there and you were networked and then you moved out there where where were you playing and what were those gigs that you were doing then so i was i literally like my so i did into yeah i think it was 2007 mm. so i was 17 then i would just take any gig i'd like a lot of it was at orange corner mostly um and like i'd play just occasionally here and there and everywhere and then when I actually got the residency at Orange Corner, it was 12 hours a day at Orange Corner, like six six days a week. Wow. So, yeah, I that's when I learned how to DJ. Yeah, I'll, I'll bet. Yeah, I mean, that's where you really learn your craft, isn't it? Doing the 10,000 hours, isn't it? It's that repetition. And, yeah. you know, it wasn't, I suppose, at this stage in the game, it's, it's not off final anymore. You're on CDJs, I would hope, doing 12 hours. <laughs> Yeah, so I had like a very very rude awakening because in two thousand and when my in two thousand and six, my first year, CDJs just came in really. Mm -hmm. Um, But two thousand and seven, I was still playing on vinyl, and when I went to Ibiza, like everyone started playing on playing on CDJs, and and the the vinyl were just like fucking beer holders um so 2007 i like had to like find an internet shop like on the top of the west end and like burn a bunch of cds which like if you know ibiza you know the internet is just not good at all and this was like in 2007 Mm -hmm. so you're like it was such an absolute nightmare um and I remember having to go to the, one of the record shops on the island. Fuck, what's his name? Danny. Don't know his full, his last name, but that this guy called Danny used to have a record shop on the island and he would like sell like blank CDs. So I'd have to go get the blank CDs from there, go to the internet cafe, hope that I could download music and literally spend all day there and then burn the CDs in the internet cafe because I didn't have a laptop at the time. Mm-hmm. And yeah, go from there. So yeah, it was CDs were shit back then as well. <laughs> like yeah. the CD, looking back, and I'm like, I wish they just stuck with vinyl because mm-hmm. CDs were absolutely terrible. Um, but yeah, and then and then I did 2008 Orange Corner, 2009 Orange Corner, mm-hmm. 2010 I was resident at Kenya. Oh, okay, yeah, yeah. I was doing a lot more on the island as well. Like I got a job with a a guy called Tom Brown. Tom is like the reason why 
radio is on the island mm -hmm. he was like big in radio london years ago he used to run a radio station in australia i've had him on my podcast actually um but he runs mambo studios and the, the years that i was there he had like set up a deal with this polish radio station i can't even remember what it's called but the guy that ran this the station was a guy called proszemic uh -huh. absolutely mad polish guy um and their deal was like he needed like 12 hours a week of live dj sets from <laughs> ibiza um so tom employed me to go and help record the dj sets mm -hmm. but like we weren't recording just like we weren't just plugging a line out of the mixer it was like we're micing everything up mm -hmm. yeah so we've got like yeah. mics so the crowd can be heard and then we'd have a mixer and we'd be mixing so like when the breakdown would come in and like people were going crazy we'd like mix in the crowd a bit louder we were just like constantly there and of course that means that you have to man a mixer for however long the dj set is yeah um and he also used to run the podcast that we love space well we love sundays but which is every sunday at space yeah. um so I used to have every Sunday off and then go and work for him. And we'd literally be there from 6 p.m. at night to 6 a.m. the next morning sometimes. And we'd be recording everything. And they there was, oh, fuck, what's her name? Ruth. There was a, a girl called Ruth that used to work with Tom as well. And she would do all the like presenting for, for, for uh, We Love Sundays. Mm -hmm. I'm pretty sure you can find them on YouTube somewhere. And like they'd interview... And they'd go around and like speak to a load of people. It was just like amazing. It was like for me, that was like Ibiza in the like the heyday of yeah. the time. Yeah. It was still when space was 24 hours mm -hmm. as well. Um, it was only like the second year of me working there that it got closed down to like 12 hours. Yeah. But like some of those terrace sets and the sunset terrace sets were just fucking iconic. It's just unbelievable nights. Yeah, what an era, what a time capsule as well. And yeah, I, I swear I've come across some of that stuff on, on YouTube as well, just to just to relive those days. It's yeah. an incredible time. Um, and it's something that is kind of almost missing a little bit from the island, I think, these days. It, it feels a bit, that back then it was a bit, felt a bit more like freewheeling and, you know, a bit like just taped together in some ways. And, you know, I think these days it can feel very organised and very slick and it's lost a yeah, bit it's, of energy it's... from that, I think. I, I think people said that about the time when we were <laughs> yeah. kind of growing up there. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, I think it's just the, the, we're just a bunch of old men <laughs> going around saying, oh, it was better back in the days. Yeah. However, part of me, like, it was more so brands that had nights rather than DJs. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. So Carl Cox had his night on Tuesdays, which was, like, iconic. Mm -hmm. But then apart from that, you had... We Love Space on Sundays. You had Manu Mission on Mondays. Mm -hmm. You had DC10 on a Thursday. You also had Cream on a Thursday. Mm -hmm. So, like, they were all, like, really big branded names rather than, like, Calvin Harris, yeah. Camel Fat, yeah. Fisher, blah, 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 blah. So it, it was very much driven by the brand, not the DJ, which personally, to, for me, like, allows a night to be way more interesting. Yeah. The manumission was a special party. And also for me, space on Sundays was just like the most iconic party on the island. I, 
honestly, like I'm gonna say, like probably in the world, in my experience, mm-hmm. because they, what the guys did there to book, they would have really interesting lineups, like really, really interesting lineups, and it would mean that like you would get a bit of everything. Yeah. Like I remember when Grace Jones performed there. Mm-hmm. Like fucking Grace Jones performing in Ibiza, like live. Mm-hmm. And then in like the you had James Abelia like in the terrace. <laughs> and then you had like early disclosure, like mm-hmm. uh, like in the like chill room at the top, in the red room. And then it was just like a bunch of like mishmash. And then you had like Dimitri from Paris come in and play like a disco set on the terrace and just like it going fucking mental. When now it's like you still have that and you still have all of those things, but you're not really allowed to like genre bend. It's like, this is what you're getting. You're getting, let's say for instance, like with Camel Fat, love the boys to death. Fucking great. Music's great. Mm -hmm. But like, you know what you're getting with Camel Fat. Yeah. So you go you go to a camel fat night because that's what you want to get like space on Sundays. You didn't know what you were always going to get. Yeah. Could be a bit of everything. I mean, you know, that era of Ibiza, you know, for you, um, obviously working out there, what, what, what did it then do to your career in terms of like the next step? Did it, how did it get you noticed the connections you made? What, what happened after that? It didn't really. I was, I was, it sounds really like, I don't want to downtrod Ibiza and downtrod being a resident. Mm. The the one thing that I learned from Ibiza was how to be a DJ. Mm-hmm. Um, and it taught me to like be a DJ really. I then kind of realized that for me to grow any further, I needed to leave Ibiza and learn to like properly produce and like really concentrate on production. Yeah. Um, because I was like constantly like when I was at Kenya, we'd always do parties and we'd always have, have pre-parties and all the big DJs would come through and I'm like, why can't I be that person? If you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And like, apart from Pete Tong, like everyone else that came through was like big producers at the end of the day. And it was just a big a matter of fact of like, okay, I have to produce and do I want to work five months of the year my absolute ass off like not earning i was earning reasonably good money for the time and for being on in ibiza like you don't generally earn good money in ibiza but i was earning a good wage but it's because i was working 20 hours a day seven days a week Mm -hmm. so it was like okay i need to step away from being in ibiza and each year like they would try and pay you less yeah yeah it would get busier and busier and you're like guys like come the fuck on like (laughs) i'm literally working longer than anybody in this bar Mm -hmm. and you're trying to like not pay me as much so yeah i was just like all right enough's enough i'm not going back to ibiza let me focus on production yeah and things moved forward from there yeah and so so you'd had you kind of discovered like your own in a sound by that point in terms of what no. you wanted to produce no no not really yeah it took me a while um and then i wanted to it took me a while i wanted to be like signed to defected signed to hot creations i wanted to do this i wanted to do that mm-hmm. i wanted to do everything which is the typical like 
young producer kind of mentality of like what do I need to do be- to become successful or what are all the people that I look up to doing mm-hmm. and like I like this person so I like that person so I need to go do what they do I go what they do and I, it just didn't work yeah it just really didn't fucking work and then that's when it kind of Dirty Bird was Dirty Bird was on my radar for years I fucking loved that record label at the beginning it was just like for me musically it was just so forward thinking mm-hmm. um so like just pushed every boundary in house music yeah it wasn't trying to be anything else it was just purely being itself at the time and there wasn't anything and honestly there's not really anything like that now that's doing that in my biased opinion i'd happily i'd happily be corrected if that was the case Mm -hmm. um but they were just doing something that wasn't ever done before at that time and i was like okay fuck it i need to sign to dirty bird (laughs) (laughs) ryan reynolds here from Mint mobile with the price of just about everything going up during inflation we thought we'd bring our prices down so to help us we brought in a reverse auctioneer which is apparently a thing Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. And so, see, so were you making stuff specifically to, to like targeting your sound that you were creating to get signed on there? Or did it work the other way? They picked up on something that you had done. How did that work? No, yeah. So I... I wrote a record called Big Booty. Mm-hmm. Um, I can't remember any of these years, so I don't. I don't know don't when worry. it was fully. Yeah. I signed a Big Booty to Worthy's label, Anabatic, mm-hmm. um, and that record was the first record I like had ever had other DJ, other big DJs really support my music. Um. And that was when Jamie Jones was supporting my music, Eats Everything, Seth Troxler, MK. Like all the big guys at that time was all was all playing that record. Mm-hmm. And it kind of like it was great, but it also completely fucked me up. 
because I had Jamie Jones asking me for like EPs and stuff like that. And I was like, oh shit, Jamie Jones wants a record from me. Yeah. I now need to make music for Hot Creations. Mm -hmm. And it just destroyed me <laughs> like mentally, like, because I, I couldn't do it. Like I wasn't that, I wasn't made to write music for Hot Creations. Yeah. And realistically like in hindsight jamie wasn't asking me to make hot creations records he was asking me to make a will clark record yeah. but i didn't kind of know that at that time mm -hmm. and i quit music for like six months um i was gonna open a club with a mate in bristol um and we were about to like we were gonna open we had like we had the keys and we had the electricians go in. Oh my goodness! Um, and th and then all of a sudden, the the landlord wanted like an extra twenty grand a year, right? For um for rent, and I was like, "Fuck you! Have the keys back. <laughs> I'm going back to music." Yeah. <laughs> Here you go. Oh my goodness! And then then Jamie asked me to remix Hot Natured, mm -hmm. um, and I then I signed a record. Can't remember. I I think I signed an EP to Dirty Bird then mm. on their like ten year anniversary. I think it was a ten year anniversary. Yeah, and I don't know why the fuck he signed it because it was awful. <laughs> I really don't know why he signed it. Um, <laughs> it was very random that he signed it, but he signed it, and I was like, sweet. Now I've got my in with Barkley, aka Claude Von Stroke, and yeah. I am just gonna fucking destroy his inbox with music. And I, that's exactly what I did. And I think 2015, 2016, I was the most released artist on Dirty Bird. Um, and he was like, dude, you're just sending me too much music. And it's like, it's all really good for the music, for the label. And like, I think I had like one year, I think 2015, I had like three or four EPs on the label mm -hmm. or like a couple of EPs and then a couple of singles on some comps and stuff. And it just like... I was just extremely fortunate that Barkley and I had, I, I purposely was like, I'm going hard on this and I need to make this something. I need to make a career out of this. And how am I going to do that? And Barkley is the gatekeeper right now mm -hmm. for me. So how do I kind of break that gate down and build a relationship? And I, I literally like every month I, I was still in the UK then. So every month I was like, organizing zoom calls or skype calls back then <laughs> and like i'd have like a skype call with him like every month and we'd just be chatting and catching up and things like that and just building a relationship and a rapport with him mm. and i for me like i think i don't think a lot of artists did that back then which kind of kept him always in the back of his mind of yeah. like oh that and then he asked me to do a remix and then i became friendly with the rest of the crew then he asked me to play um, Dirty Bird Camp Out. Mm -hmm. And it kind of was like the rest is history there. Luckily, I was really fortunate. He he put me in touch with his agent in America, a guy called Max Braun, who's not my agent now, but I'm still on the same agency. Yeah. Um, and like that's kind of born to like me having a reasonably successful career in especially in America as, yeah. as a tour, touring artist. Yeah. Yeah, that's kind of how it all started. Yeah.
And I mean, what do you find, you know, obviously you've got that big footprint in America through this association and, you know, you're playing in the clubs out there, you're doing, like you mentioned, Dirty Camp Out and things like that. Like how different and nuanced is the market there and the dance floors and the people and the reactions compared to Europe and the UK? Is it out there? And like festival wise, I've never actually been to a festival in the US, but I've got friends who have been to like Coachella and Burning Man and things like yeah. that. And it's a different beast they've told me so you yeah. know how is that for you have you found it well it's, it's really it's really hard to explain because obviously i grew up through in america through the dirty bird kind of label mm-hmm. um and dirty bird when i was growing up through it was like the biggest thing that happened to electronic dance music in america mm-hmm. so like we were really fortunate that we were like on the best stages we were doing the best clubs like it was really amazing and then I decided I needed out of of Dirty Bird and I needed to, I, I wanted to evolve my sound. I was getting, this is no disrespect to the label, I was just getting bored of what it was getting put out. For me, it didn't feel like it was as forward thinking as it used to be. It kind of got a little bit like templatey, which it did. I When when there's huge success of something, it generally gets templatey. Mm-hmm. Um, so I was, I wanted out, but, Dirty Bird Camp Out was the fucking best festival ever. Like, it was it was a festival that was purely made, for me, what a festival was supposed to be, is just having fun. Mm-hmm. And, like, no snobbiness, no, like, commercialization of anything, just a bunch of people in a field having a rave. And it being ran by a family of, like, artists that all wanted to do the same thing and just make sure that everyone had an amazing time. It was amazing. Yeah. And they're not doing it this year, sadly. Like I, I haven't played camp out for a while. Yeah. Um, I, I stopped doing a lot of the dirty bird stuff, but well, all of the dirty bird stuff as of 2019. Mm-hmm. Um, but that was purely because my own choice in my own musical direction. Yeah. Really. Um, but still, like I hands down tell anybody to go to Dirty Bird Camp Out because it's so much fucking fun. <laughs> it's it's a very different culture, America and UK mm-hmm. with festivals. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of UK festivals is just about going get going getting as wrecked as possible as a, as a punter, if you know what I mean. You guys mm-hmm. like. I'm not going to name any names of festivals, but like we all know them. Mm -hmm. And like that is part of British culture and I love it. I respect it. It is how it is. But there's also a level of like, it's why a lot of the music just stays the same. Yeah. Yeah. Because it's, it doesn't like the weirdest thing for me was in America. And I think this is through the, through the EDM days, you would have somebody that like, was loved Seth Troxler, but also loved Tiesto. And you wouldn't ever get that in England. Yeah. You wouldn't get that in Europe at mm-hmm. that time. Mm-hmm. Maybe, maybe now, I don't know. Like I'm, I'm kind of too far removed from being a fan mm-hmm. to like understand if that would happen. Um, but you also still get that now in America. So it kind of allows things to, it allows genres to cross. It allows artists to be artists. I don't think the clubbing scene, clubbing culture is as good as Europe as it is in 
I think it's way better in Europe yeah. than it is in America. Mm-hmm. I think the the culture it's different. It's very different, mm. and I don't think you can compare them because it's like comparing chalk and cheese. Yeah. Um, we at, in Europe in the UK, dance music is so embedded in in our lives. Yeah. Where we have dance records in the top ten of the charts every fucking day. You don't get that. Even Calvin Harris doesn't get number ones in America, mm-hmm. if that makes sense. Like with the biggest pop stars as features. So it's like I'm he has had number ones, but like it's it's not like he's gonna get a week a, a record for nine weeks at number one like he would in the UK. Mm-hmm. It's just different culture and there's just so many more fucking people out there. Yeah. So it's you've got like four hundred million or however many people there compared to sixty five million here. Yeah or 68 it's just your fan base just it it just becomes a lot more like niche yeah uh it i love both um but for me america's been very good to me can't complain no yeah you absolutely can't um and you know you split your time between the uk and detroit right so yeah you know do you have you actually physically moved out there like permanently how's that transatlantic kind of relationship you have between the two i have been in and out of america for nine years now like living in it back and forth mm-hmm. um i'm never anywhere permanently really so yeah. i i have a place in detroit that i bought nearly well five and a half years ago and what was the what 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 prompted detroit is it just was it like literally the birthplace of techno i'm gonna no, do that or was it somewhere you just fell in love with or what i didn't even really fall in love with it to start with <laughs> it was just <laughs> i was living in la wasn't a huge fan of la mm-hmm. lived in new york loved new york but didn't really want to pay new york prices for like i i like my own space i like being by myself and having my own space to kind of come back and chill and for me to have that, it was going to cost me like three and a half, four grand a month in New York. And I had an opportunity to go to Detroit. I'm not too sure if you know much about the history outside of music in Detroit, but it's pretty, or it's a very working class, yeah. class blue blue collar city. Motor city, right? Yeah. Yeah. Um, obviously the history is amazing um, and sad, but yeah, it's it was just extremely affordable at the time for me in my career that allowed me to have extremely cheap rent um and then i was like why am i renting in a place where i could just buy Mm -hmm. and buying a house for me was always like a thing that i for djs renting this is my opinion Mm -hmm. i think is the most stupid thing because we are always on the go and we're never home so it's like you're paying rent in a place where you're not even using it for half the time Mm -hmm. so you might as well not pay rent and just rent a hotel room if (laughs) if you if you're not there that often realistically like some sometimes i'm in detroit like once every two months so like what was what would be the point of me spending two three grand a month on an apartment it's just kind of like counterintuitive um so yeah buying a house was like always something that i really wanted to do because it was like an investment into future mm-hmm. and, and kind of future proof myself yeah so i i bought it five and a half years ago and 
slowly fell in love with it. It took me a long time. It's a very big adjustment. Detroit to Somerset from Detroit. It's like... <laughs> yeah, you couldn't get more further apart. Yeah. Have you been to Detroit? No, no, I haven't. Actually, I've been. I've seen a lot of America, but I was watching. I was watching a documentary um, about it, maybe in the last couple of years, just about yeah. all of you know the all of the the houses and the repossessions and you know the 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 huge factories that are there yeah. and. Yeah, I mean, it's so interesting. But then this is what kind of almost happens in these spaces, isn't it? Where, you know, there's this huge industry and then everything moves out of it. And then like, then the artists and the creatives move in because, you know, it's somewhere where it's affordable. And, you know, this whole other underground scene kind of starts back up from that. It's this cyclical thing, isn't it? Totally, totally. Um, I I do really hope people start moving to Detroit a little bit. Hmm. There's a great little very little art scene very very small house and techno scene obviously they have movement which packs how guys make do the best job it's one of the best festivals in america mm-hmm. especially for the bookings the bookings are just fucking out of this world yeah and detroit during that era during during that time it's memorial weekend which is like, i think it's like last weekend in may it's just a, the best time to be in detroit and kind of experience the culture and everything about it at that time mm. it's, it's super special yeah and I mean for you as a creative like I assume you've got you know you've got a studio out there as well is that do you find yourself working differently in a creative sense when you're in the Detroit studio compared to a UK studio it's been really weird if I'm totally honest because I was working a bit when when I first moved to Detroit and bought my house and built the studio and all of that. Like I was writing quite a lot. And that was when I was going through like my transitioning from like leaving Dirty Bird to like finding the new sound of what Will Clark is. And I was going way more techno, which being in Detroit obviously helped. And I think a lot of people were like, well, Will, you've moved to Detroit and you started making techno. And it was kind of like, yeah, I have. But then COVID happened Mm. and I spent, I, luckily came back to the uk and spent my whole time in during covid in in the uk and if i think like hallelujah was made in detroit uh you take me higher was made in this studio in the uk so like no it didn't really change like how i would work or like anything like that but most of my writing gets done here now i just don't really have time when i'm in detroit it's very like i'm going to tour and then I'm either recording podcasts or I'm like writing for somebody else. I don't, I haven't written there for a long time. Going back this week there for like a month. So hopefully I get to actually write some music in Detroit because it's been a fucking while. <laughs> and when you're, when you're being creative and you're writing music, do you, is it very much a solo endeavor for yourself? Do you like to do it on your own or do you want to invite collaborators in and work with, you know, songwriters mm. or, you know, vocalists and, piano yeah. and all these kind of things so i spent my life in my own studio by myself mm. um and covid i don't get me wrong i've always written music for other people that was kind of how i earned money before i was like full-time dj as well but then during covid i wrote so much music alone that i just got fed up with writing music by myself <laughs> and now from april last year 
to now I've just been writing with other people mm-hmm. and kind of my view is I'm working on a few projects that like are slightly away from house music uh, or like typical club music. And for me, it was just like, okay, I need to get people that are good at their own craft that are better than me at what I'm trying to do. And I can do what I'm good at and they can do what they're good at. And we can make something hopefully amazing. Mm-hmm. Um, that was just com- coming out of COVID. I just got a bit house music out, really. <laughs> um, yeah, I, I think now I just like being in the room with other people. Yeah. Don't necessarily uh, that. It's not really that. It's not always that productive. But I think as long as you're just making cool shit that like excites you, then that's what matters for me anyway. Yeah, totally, totally. And, you know, you mentioned um, the podcast there as well, which you've been running since um, that you started up in, that started in lockdown, right? Was it, it was in yeah, 2020? April. Yeah, April 2020, yeah. I mean, so what, you know, what kind of prompted you to do that? Was it just an outlet for you to have a, you know, that human connection during those weird times? Or, you know, and, and you know, what do you get out of it? Because, you know, it's been running... It's been every week, hasn't it? Have you you've basically not missed a week since then? Is that right? Yeah. <laughs> no. Yeah, we've done. It's Tuesday tomorrow, and we, it's so it's a hundred and seventy second episode. Wow. I mean, um, that is uh, obviously from yeah. from my, my own point of view. Like, you know, this is, is going to be like episodes nearly sixty, I think. But we've been cool. doing it like. Congrats. Thank you. <laughs> yeah, it's going to be yeah, it's monthly at the moment, and even releasing it monthly, I know how much work it, these things take. You know, basically everything's like run through me. Um, yeah. Yeah. So I mean, I assume you do all of that yourself as well. So congrats in terms of running your own life. <laughs> yeah, it's it's a lot of work, as I'm sure you know. Mm. Um, but for me, it was just. I used to have a radio show. Um, I really dislike doing mixes. I know that sounds a bit funny, but like for me, a mix is supposed to be in a club, not mm-hmm. just done in a fucking studio. And I got so bored of doing a mix. But in that, a, the rec- the radio show called used to be called The Barbershop. Mm-hmm. And in that, it was like, okay, there was a section where I would get like, the artist top uh, we'd call it the top trims um and it was like three of their top records mm-hmm. um and for me it was like i'd interview them at the time and it was a very short like section of, of the of the um inter- of the radio show but it was my favorite mm-hmm. so like ever since i started doing that i was like okay i want to do more of a long form thing mm-hmm. i stopped that in november 20 i think 2019 i stopped the radio show mm-hmm. um just to be like, I'm done with it. it. It was always like a last minute thing. It was never fun. Like it was just, it was just hard work. Yeah. Um. So I stopped that. And then I said to Ryan, my manager, I was like, I really want to start a podcast. And he was like, cool, do it. And it just took me till April to like actually have any time or like not any time. I had time, but to make time mm-hmm. and to kind of fit it into my schedule to like really do it if yeah. i'm honest um and realistically it took me so long to like work out what the podcast is and and it was just like winging it for a year easily a year and it's only been 6 months that i've had an editor maybe not even 6 months mm-hmm. 
like four months maybe that I've had an editor and I've had somebody to help me with it. Um, when I first started touring again, my Ryan, my manager started helping schedule it with other people to like get other artists on. Yeah. Now, like there's like a whole crew behind it and it's like slowly turning into something that is growing slowly, I guess. But mm -hmm. it's also like, I'm sure you kind of have this thing is like, we're in such a niche market. Mm-hmm it's like really hard to grow something in a niche market. Yeah. And yeah. I think for me is like the podcast was, yes, it's easy for me to talk to other artists. Right. And there's obviously some massive artists that I want to get on in the future and things like that. But realistically, like I want the podcast to grow outside of music and to kind of be in a situation where I can talk to just anybody that I feel really interested in, because when I like you're not just a music guy, if you know mm -hmm. what I mean, like there's we're there's plenty more to like who we are as human beings outside of the music world. And I think honestly, like it would just be nice to do things outside of it. Yeah. Um, and then bring people in from the outside to the to our niche world. Mm -hmm. And that's like for me the whole goal of it. Um so yeah, we we signed the podcast to Virgin um, last year and we're just like, just, I'm trying to work out how to grow it, but also how to keep it interesting and then kind of bring other people outside of music in. It's yeah. just like other creatives, like yeah. chefs, athletes, like people like that, really. Mm -hmm. um, things that I'm interested in. So yeah, it's. I love doing the podcast. I love talking to people. It's it's great. I like being able to just like phones off, have a conversation like we're having now. Mm -hmm. it doesn't happen nowadays generally, and like everyone's always looking at their phone, which I understand. I'm exactly the same, but it's like it's very rare you have an hour, two hour, three hour conversation with somebody with no distractions. Yeah. Yeah. And it, I, th I think it's really important. I think we need to have these conversations more. I think it's so much, it's so healthy for us to kind of debate things and like talk about things we disagree on and mm -hmm. talk about things we agree on and just like experience life in a conversation because it doesn't happen anymore. And entertaining points of view that you don't necessarily agree with um, rather than, you know, like managing your life and everything you read or everything you consume um, being all stuff that you agree with. Um, it's, it's not healthy for, for anyone. Well, I, I think that's the thing, isn't it? Is like I see it way more in America mm. um, than I do in the UK because I think British people are generally a little bit more op not open, but like cynical. <laughs> yeah we just don't like it is what it is if you know yeah. what i mean and i don't mean that in a disrespectful way mm. to americans but it's just we've we've, uh, we've been through it a lot more a lot for a lot longer than, than america mm -hmm. but like conversation is so important it's so so important to get your views across to it to teach people to and to learn i just don't think people enough people talk from opposing views and mm. and kind of debate it out and like i love hearing people's opinions because then it allows me to like question my own 
beliefs and my own actions and everything like that. Absolutely. Yeah. Like completely like you say, instead of just shutting down and saying, you've got an opinion I don't agree with, I'm therefore not going to listen. It's like, you know, having that meeting of minds and having that conversation. And yeah, the format is is the perfect place to do that. It's nothing better than, you know, not only produce the podcast, I'm sure you, you know, you, you, listen, you yourself listen to other podcasts as well. It's nothing better than just putting headphones on and spending time in the room with someone who you want to listen to or someone who you might not want to listen to. Totally, totally agree, man. Cool, man. Uh, well, look, it's been an hour, so, I'd, you know, we, we, we're doing really well. I need to move on to um, the, the perfect playlist. So um, let's do it. Let's do it. So this is the the house culture perfect playlist. So this is um, yeah. it's based on five different themes. Every single one of our guests has submitted one of the tunes that popped into their head for one of these themes. So you find it on Spotify. It's like over thirty hours long or whatever, considering the the episodes that we've done. So we always start off with um, with a catalyst tune, something that opened your ears to to electronic music. You've already mentioned. Do you, do you want me to tell you what you've chosen, or can you remember? Yeah, just remind me. <laughs> Fine, no worries. So, I think it was insomnia. It was insomnia. Yeah. yeah. So just yeah, you, you've already mentioned that. But if you've got any other kind of little tidbit of info of like where you maybe played that and it's meant something more to you, more meaningful, or and which, which and which mix is it that you is your one because there's obviously the mix on reverence yeah with the long intro it's like the monster mix and all that which one yeah the, the long intro is obviously the one for me yeah. um like it's just a special record i've seen faithless countless times live my first time my dad took me out of school said that i had like a dentist appointment and he took me out when i was i think i was 11 years old oh my god wow okay yeah. amazing um, so your first yeah. gig was faithless then yeah incredible yeah it was um fucking believable first time i smelt weed at the same time as well i thought it was i thought it was a smoke machine and it wasn't i was like dad that smoke machine smells weird and he's like that's not smoke son <laughs> well he's puffing away <laughs> yeah, yeah no he, he doesn't smoke but yeah it's just like it's just like i i will never forget that night mm. i still have the poster up in my in my kitchen from that night amazing amazing yeah. must have been incredible um yeah i mean faithless between faithless and the chemical brothers probably the two that i've i've seen the most live ever yeah and yeah they've chems always chems are amazing oh yeah i'm gonna geek out a little bit here but like in terms of like the material and the albums and stuff when i know them all quite so intimately and then when you go to the gig and you just hear like that little bit from that other yeah. album track they've just dropped in there and you're like oh my god yeah, yeah. It's, I love that. Yeah, the chems were very good at that. They're mm. very good at just like give it, it. For me, it's like a perfect live experience because the Faithless and Chems are very different. How like the Faithless is a band, yeah. obviously. Now it's not. Mm. Rest in peace, Maxi Jazz. But like, yeah. it was a band and it was done very respectfully as a band, and that's what I love going to see them. Is like when Maxi wasn't on stage. And like some of the musicians weren't needed on stage, they'd leave and give the like the limelight to the to the other artists that were on the stage. And for me, that was just like wow, like the level of respect that was shown to them all was just fucking special. Yeah. Whereas the Chems just like slay, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> absolutely slay from start to finish, and just like go off on tangents and mm -hmm. chucking acid lines when you weren't expecting it and then yeah. put like the acapella of like their famous some of their massive hits over a record that you would never even expect it and just it was more of a dj set than yeah. 
than a band, but it was live because they were obviously well, it's not not a lot of it's not live, let's be honest, but it's done on ADAT machines back in the day and mm. now it's done on Ableton. Um but they have live elements and yeah, it's just fucking great. Yeah. Yeah, I think yeah, hopefully seeing them tour before the end of the year. Um so the next one is a floor filler. You've chosen um Conjure Sex by Massio Plex. Yeah, this record is like a modern day classic for me. Mm-hmm. I play it nearly every set. I don't really play many other people's records. Um, a lot of my sets now in my own music. And this is just something, it's an absolute panty dropper. <laughs> like literally, like you play it and it kind of wakes up the room a little bit and yeah. kind of just the the space. I don't, I don't know how he writes music. It's unbelievable and it pisses me off every time I hear a record because <laughs> it's so good. But the way he the way he makes his records with so much space, yeah, it's so full. It's just unbelievable. There's not I'll be honest, like there's not many artists that I'm like absolutely like jaw dropped from them from how they produce. Mm-hmm. Um apart like there's a few and Maceo is one of those. It's just unbelievable. What an accolade. Um okay, so next one is a sunsetter. Yeah. Soundtrack of Perfect Sunset you've chosen um Moby. Why does my heart feel so bad? This is like a special record for me. Yeah, just like every time I play the sunset and I be where I play it. Mm. It's just one of my favorite records ever. Yeah. It's a dark record as well. Yeah. Um means a lot of things personally. It's just just a, a great record and for me it just it stops the day and starts the night. It's very very good way of putting it. Okay. So we can move on to a tearjerker now. So um, don't want to get so like get, get down the emotional hole now. But um, it's uh, you've chosen. It. I'm so pleased you've chosen this as well. It's your own edit of, but it's an absolute. Just even the original, just on its own, because I'm a massive yeah. movie nerd as well. Is wow. yeah, it's uh, time by Hans Zimmer. Your own mix of that, obviously from Inception. Um, yeah, just talk about that and why you had to take that on and um so i i listened i heard the tale of obviously i i'm a huge movie fan as well Mm -hmm. and that 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 film is very good and realistically i heard the tale of us remix years ago Mm -hmm. absolutely years ago when they first put it on on um youtube and i was like this is good but i can't play it it's too like no disrespect to them, but it just didn't have any balls. Mm-hmm. It fit their sets, but it would never fit mine. And it just wasn't really my vibe. And then I was listening to the original and then I like Googled like, what's the tempo of this? Yeah. And it's like 128. And I was like, <laughs> fucking game on. <laughs> so I, I literally like dragged it all. I, I bought it, ripped it all out, put it in a session and was like, I'm doing this. <laughs> Um, and it's, I'm not a great keys player, but it's pretty simple. Like yeah. the, like the, the melody is very simple, which is why hands is the best. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I, this is a part of every single one of my sets, especially the big festival shows. This is like my closing set, mm-hmm. closing, closing record of the set. And yeah, it just, it's an emotional record it's an emotional record i think it it means something different to everybody and i get people 
every time go well you made me cry that night when when you played that so does it make me cry personally no like moby why does your heart feel so bad makes me cry more mm-hmm. um but hans is what is my favorite composer um or one of them and this it it, it creates a moment for me that is just like it's a nice set and uh, it allows the dj afterwards as well mm-hmm. to like go go from there because it's just like very it ends very chill and like yeah. on a respect level i i want to be able to give the dj after me a, a space to build yeah and yeah people love it awesome yeah i mean hans is the man it's yeah absolutely incredible okay and now yeah it is time for the last tune so ignoring playing hands in a time your mix of that you've chosen um and it, well it's not out until well it's what's what's the day today it's out now it's out now this so, is a hope hopeless promotion <laughs> don't worry Let's i mean be honest. this this because this 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 episode this is going to be our october episode so it'll already oh, wow. be smashing yeah, stuff yeah. to bits already i'm sure but yeah. yeah you've chosen um your own track called move your body and yeah. is that your voice on the track no it's, it's honey loves it's honey loves um so she we were in the studio in august 2022 mm-hmm. in la um and moxie knox was in there with us as well and i just wanted to like make classic hip house like early 90s hip house kind of vibe yeah. um and like taylor aka honey love she's a fucking amazing lyricist and has a great voice as well and moxie has a great voice so like I I what you hear is very different musically from what we wrote at the time. Um but yeah, I just wanted to make a fun record. It's fun, but it also still works in my sets. And it's like yeah, I'm really happy with it. Really happy with it. Good stuff. Hopefully, so when this comes out, it's still smashing. <laughs> it could have absolutely bombed and no one no one likes it anymore, but fuck it. Why not? Cool. All right. So, so this is where we get to the final question. So obviously, this is the House Culture podcast. Um, you're part of the culture of the scene. And when you think of like the culture of house yeah. music, of dance music, you know, what? how do you sum it up for yourself? And, you know, how do you, how do you put your put your own place into it for me it's just community mm-hmm. it's just bringing people and allowing them escapism from reality from all their issues that they have in that we all that we all have that we all go through in our daily lives to just allow a safe space for people to be themselves and listen to great music perfect place to end thank you man appreciate it no thank you will no really appreciate it thank you so much man appreciate it House culture. I hope you appreciated that one. Will's a true professional, right? And I can't recommend his podcast enough. Of course, it's called the Will Clark Podcast and it's available wherever you get yours. I can also confirm that Will's Move Your Body track featuring Honey Love that we discussed has been a great success with nearly half a million plays on Spotify, as if there was ever any doubt. I can also highly recommend checking out Will's latest single, which is a respectful remix of a genuine house music anthem produced by himself, Latroit and Groove Terminator. It's called Good Life. You can guess the rest from there. 
And if you want to hear other classic tracks alongside some curated curios, you can head over to Spotify and search for the House Culture Perfect playlist that features every single submission from all of our previous podcast guests. Will's choices are all in there. However, you'll have to head over to SoundCloud if you want to hear his remix of that Hans Zimmer tune from Inception called Time. It's highly recommended. Whilst you're on our Spotify, you can also now leave us a comment under the episode description. Or if you're listening via Apple, you can leave us a review. You can even drop us a message if you're listening via YouTube. If you send positive vibes, we'll make sure to give you a shout out on a future episode of the show. That's why I'd like to say a big hello to Dan Thomas, who after listening to the playlist choices from our last guest, Katie Goodman, said that it was possibly the best selection yet, as it included house, disco, liquid drum and bass, and a bit of Stevie Wonder. I totally agree with you, Dan. That does sound like a party to me. Speaking of parties, if you want to get involved in the first ever house culture event taking place in 2024, head over to our Instagram page at housecultureNet to keep yourself up to date with all of our goings on. We can follow the hashtag TrueHouseCulture. We'll see you on the dance floor. And that's it from me. Don't forget that you can also get in touch with myself directly on Instagram at DJ Matt Rouse. Thanks for listening. Rave safe and see you next time. House Culture.